Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the sukkah, so that's why at home you can't see me, because there's not the light that there is in the chapel. We only have the light coming in from the schach that comes in from the roof of the sukkah, um, which is not a lot. But that's kind of how it's supposed to be. And the rabbis, like how they write a lot actually about the kind of light that comes into a sukkah um, with schach on top. And even if it were sunny outside, the kind of light that comes into a sukkah would be very different, right, than a bright, sunny day um, in any other kind of environment in any kind of setting. So we're going to look at a little bit of what they do with that. We uh, are... We always study on Friday what we would be reading on Shabbos, right? So we study on Friday what the text would be on Saturday that people are reading in synagogue. So we are studying today what people are reading tomorrow. Tonight starts Chag. So tonight is Yontif, and it starts Chag HaSukot. So um, it will be Yontif tonight and tomorrow. So they are reading in Shul everywhere in the Jewish world tomorrow, the reading for Sukkot. So that's a way to say that that's why we're going to be studying what we're studying. I decided not to do the Torah reading for the first day of Sukkot because we do it so many times a year because it's the assigned festival reading. And we do it so much that I decided, you know what, we're going to read biblical texts and rabbinic texts about Sukkot. So we're going to study a little bit about Sukkot, right, and texts related to Sukkot as we uh, move into Chag, uh, tomorrow being our first day of Chag. Um, all right, so um, we are sitting in a sukkah, as you know, so we're going to look at some texts about where this originates. Uh, and, of course, we have um, the practice of lulav. Often people think mm-hmm. the palm branch is lulav, but it's not. The lulav is the bouquet. It's the entire thing is the lulav. Um, so it's not incorrect to say we wave the lulav because... The date palm is what actually kind of moves, but you're, but you're shaking the bouquet in all of those directions. So, yes, we have an etrog. Um, and we are told the paper today about the etrog. Oh, and this is a ginormous etrog. With a, with a waist, which I don't really understand, but, um, I don't think I've ever seen an etrog with a waist, but, um, it's female. Yeah, it's a feminine, uh, version of the etrog. Um, you kind of do get like mother goddess kind of vibes off, okay. off that, don't yeah. you? You know, okay. Yeah, you can move it down. So we, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. All right. So let us start with our first text that I have for you, which, um, what I did was I went through and brought for you texts in order how they appear in the five books everywhere Sukkot appears and then some writings by the rabbis that, um, elucidate that because as you know, um, that's really where we get so much of our Jewish practice and tradition is from the rabbis, not from the biblical practice, because the biblical practice was cult-centered, right? It was temple and sacrifice-centered. So um, a lot of the traditions we have now are from uh, the rabbis who read into um, the biblical text. And let's look at number one. Number one is from Shmut, is from the book of Exodus. So... So three festivals shall you festivalize to me in the year, right? Um, three pilgrimage festivals, right? Hag is a pilgrimage festival. So, right, this is where we get Hajj in uh, the Muslim tradition. You shall observe the Chag Hamatzot. So one Chag is Chag Hamatzot, the, the Chag of Matzah. Uh, which is, of course, Pesach, Passover, Tishmor, you shall observe. Shivat Yamim, seven days. Tochal Matzot, you shall eat Matzah. Kasher Tiviticha, Lemoed Chodesh Ha'aviv, right at the time of the month of spring. Kivoya Tata Mimitzrayim, because that's when you came out of Egypt, right? Um, and none shall appear before me with Rekam, empty. So meaning you bring your offerings, you bring your fruits of the harvest with you when you come at 
uh, at Chag HaPesach and the Chag HaKatsir. So now we're going to get the feast of the harvest of the fruits of your work of what you sow in the field. That is the holiday of Javuot. Javuot. So now we're going to get and then the feast of ingathering. Chag HaAsif. The festival of gathering in. We're getting a timing on all of these, right? So, so Pesach happens at, ha, at the month of Aviv, of spring, which was the first month of the year. When is Chag HaAsif gonna happen? The one, Shavuot happens, the first fruits, um, the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your work. What, when is this Chag HaAsif business, this gathering harvest, what, uh, festival? When does that happen? Yeah. When you gather in the results of your work from the field, we're not given a date. We're not given a date for Sukkot. We're given a time of agricultural reality. What is the, when do you know it's time to celebrate Chag HaAsif? When at the end of the year, right? If Passover is the beginning of the year, we are at the end of the year and we're certainly at the end of the agricultural uh, time because in the winter, nothing is harvested. Things are growing, but they're not harvested until the spring. So it's, there's a down season. So we are now at the end of the agricultural year. So, um, what does that mean? We're going to see what the commentaries say, what, what that means. Cause it doesn't seem to mean when you harvest it versus the one we just saw, the feast of the harvest. This seems to be something different. When you gather in the results of your work in the field, when you gather in the harvest. So we're going to see what the, what the tradition tells us about that. Three times a year, your males shall all appear before the sovereign Adonai. All right. So let's look at Rashi. I'll make up the time. Don't worry, because I, I have a little cold. It's not COVID. I did tests. Um, so I'm on, I'm on caffeine and pseudoephedrine. So we can, we can get through this. We can totally get through this. All right. When you have gathered in the, the fruit of thy labor for during the whole summertime, the fruits are drying in the fields and about the festival, um, hachag, which is what this festival is called. They are gathered into the barns on account of the rain that is then due. So that's what this festival Rashi is saying is stuff that's been drying now gets put away because the icky weather is coming. And so you don't want it to rot. So it has to get, you're gathering it into actual safety. That's what the fest, festival of in-gathering is. It's not a harvest necessarily. It's bringing in your harvest that's already been drying. Um, and then, wait, did I lose the source? There's another source that says that this is actually when the, when the grapes have been pressed, they've been stomped, and that stuff is moved into vats. And once the grain has been threshed and it is moved into, you know, big grain storage things, that is what this is talking about. Because once that happens, there's nothing else to do. Once the wine is uh, the the pulp and juice is brought into a vat to ferment and once the grain has been threshed and stored there's nothing for anyone to do until the spring harvest so this this huge festival of all our agricultural work which is their main work is done they're still going to be darning socks right and everything <laughs> of course during the winter but um but the main being out in the fields and the hard work and the risk, you know, and the hard labor is done. And so you have a festival celebrating the year of work being over. And now everyone goes on vacation, right? You go to Jerusalem and have a wonderful time. <laughs> okay. Exactly. All right. Now let's look at the next time we see uh, this Sukkot, this, this Chag. It's just called an Exodus Hachag. And then Talmud, it's called Hachag, the festival. So we saw what it is in Exodus. It's Chag Asif, the Chag of gathering in. By the time we get to Leviticus, what do we see? The commandment around this Chag is Basukot Teshvu Shiv Yamim. In Sukkot, you will dwell 
for seven days. All the people of Israel shall live in Sukkot in order Yedu Dorotechem that your generations shall know Kivasukot Hashavti Ipne Israel that in Sukkot did I cause the people of Israel to dwell when I, in the bringing them out from the land of Egypt, I Adonai am your God. So now we get a business about they shall live in Sukkot because God had them live in Sukkot when God took them out of Egypt. What's the problem? Why do we need now a lot of explication about that? What's the problem here? <laughs> Gold star for Dana. Did they live in Sukkot? We're told they lived in Sukkot. What are we told? They lived in tents. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob? Right. They live in their their tents are encamped around the Mishkan. Leviticus takes it for granted that we know they lived in Sukkot. But nowhere does that tell us that they lived in Sukkot. So now we have a problem. So let's see what some of the commentaries do with this. In the Talmud, in Masechet Sukkah, appropriately, right? The portion of the Talmud called Sukkah. For it has been taught, quoting Leviticus, I made the people of Israel to dwell in booths. These were the Ananei HaKavod. These were the clouds of glory, says Rabbi Eliezer. But it's the Talmud. So somebody is going to argue with Rabbi Eliezer, right? Because that's the Jewish way. That's what we do. Rabbi Eliezer says, don't think, God forbid, it's talking about them actually building Sukkot. It's talking about God. God has them live under the protection of the clouds of glory. That's what it's talking about. Rabbi Akiva says, they lived in real Sukkot. They built Sukkot and lived in Sukkot. Right? That's what it says. So this is the argument in Sukkot. Now, Ibn Ezra is going to pick up and say, in booths, the Israelites made booths. They made Sukkot after they crossed the sea. They certainly did so in the wilderness of Sinai, where they dwelt close to a year. This is the manner of all the camps. This festival, too, is thus in memory of the exodus from Egypt. Should someone ask why this commandment is to be observed in the month of Tishrei, like why would we do it now and not in in memory of the exodus from Egypt in the spring, then one can answer, God's cloud was over the camp during the day and the sun did not strike them. However, they started to make Sukkot from the days of Tishrei onwards because of the cold. So, right, so... So kind of a combining of, yeah, the clouds of glory is what's meant until it starts to get uncomfortably cold. Then you need to build actual Sukkot with walls, right, and some protection because it's unpleasant to be in the desert at night just with clouds for your shelter. Okay. Creative. Very, right, very creative. All right. Let's look at what's happening from Sefer HaTodaah by Rabbi Eliyahu Kitov. We are not making them the Sukkot in memory of the first set of clouds that glory that surrounded them when they left Egypt, because that would mean we're doing it at Passover. So it can't be those. Since the clouds of glory left them after the sin of the golden calf. So the clouds of glory were with them. They sinned. Boom. The clouds of glory go away. Rather, we make them in memory of the clouds of glory that returned for them afterwards and never left them all 40 years. Well, when did they return? When did the clouds return? When Israel sinned with the calf, the clouds of glory left them. When Moses came down for the third time, he also brought the commandment of building the tabernacle as a sign that God had forgiven them. When does Moshe bring the second set of tablets down? Yom Kippur. Comes the 15th day of Tishrei. What do they see? So th- this, this, this day of Tishrei, the 15th day of Tishrei, Sukkot, what do they see? They see the clouds of glory that returned after leaving them from the sin of the calf until then. From then on, the people of Israel dwell in the shade of the clouds of glory that enveloped them like a sukkah. 
So what, what we have is, right, two understandings of the Chag. So we have in Exodus, right, we have one way it's talked about, which is only agricultural. By Leviticus, we get this idea that it's because the Israelites dwelled in Sukkot. So, so there's two understandings biblically of what goes on and what this festival is about. One is agricultural. One is about Sukkot. Probably they evolve together. The Sukkot is reconstructed to mean the time in the desert. Probably Sukkot were built at the, because it's hot in Israel, like it is here often at this time of year. And so the folks who are working out in the field all day need shade. So they would build Sukkot in the field and people came in and took rest breaks in the shade. Also, probably they brought produce that they were harvesting in so it would be protected both from the sun and, and all that stuff, but also from, you know, people, people coming through that area. It's like, no, this stuff belongs to somebody. So what I'm saying is that I think the Sukkot are part of the agricultural tradition, right? That, that the Sukkah was already part of the harvest. They just reconstructed the meaning of Sukkah to be about the time we were in the desert. But we don't get a mention in Exodus about a practice of building Sukkot. We don't get that till um, Leviticus. So then it depends on, do you think P is early or late? Is the word tent, I mean, the tent of meeting, is the tent right. same as a Sukkot? No. Oh, no. That's Ohel. I know, but I'm just saying, maybe. Nobody goes there. Nobody goes there. What about the How beautiful your tents are? Is it your tent? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ohalecha. Yeah. Matovu Your tents. Your tents. Like, ohalecha. Singular. Mishkanotecha Yisrael. No, it's plural. What? Just real quick. I mean, look, maybe the person is perceiving the sukkah as tent. I don't think so. No. I think they are trying to make a meaning out of the sukkah that is tied to our sacred mythology. They, they don't want to call it a place they sat in the shade and protected the produce, right? They, it, it, beca- it, it becomes something else. And when Israelites take it on as a sacred symbol, they have to give it Israelite value. So it has to connect to the Israelite story. And so they retro jet the sukkah onto this time in the desert where they relied only on God. And it's very romanticized. It's very intimate. It's this, this portrait of Israel and God together on their honeymoon. You know what I mean? And then we move into our houses and our buildings and we start to get all fat and happy and, and wealthy and think I did all this, you know? So it's like, this is the time of going back to an intimacy with God where God was our protection. Betsy? The, the, the Sukkot is being protecting from the sun. Doesn't that run counter to the, that dude that said that it was, uh, <laughs> sorry, the, the Rao, who said, who said that it was, um, built to protect us from the cold? Um, y- yeah. The, so, yes. I mean, so two opinions. Yeah, but the, they're so different. Not remarkable. And no, but I, no one, I don't know anyone who says sun. I don't know anyone who says it protected us from the sun. I'm saying that historically, we know that happened. We know they built booths to protect workers, to take their breaks and get some shade, and to protect produce from being stolen, you know, or rotting. We know that this time of year, it'd still be very hot. Correct. Correct. To me, it doesn't make sense to... They built them to protect themselves from the cold. Right. So you're already talking about rabbis who are living... Somewhere, Somewhere else. else. Yeah. I heard a podcast from Pardes this week where the rabbi was talking about the two dimensions of Sukkot. That on the one hand, it's connected to nature. You were talking about the sun and the harvest, which is God in nature. And then on the other hand, it's connected to the Exodus, which is God in history. And so that, that, it, what, that there was that dual. So that, that, dual that is thing. what always happens. That is right. what we so always do. Right. We always have an agricultural origin story and they retroject onto our history 
one of those agricultural elements. Always. Right. They related to all the Hagim. All the Hagim have, have a agricultural origin and the rabbis layer on once they are no longer living in the land celebrating harvests, they have to do something with these festivals to make them speak to Jews. So they reconstruct the agricultural festivals to, to give it historical meaning tied to our sacred mythology. Right, our sacred history. Sheldon, are we okay? Okay, you sure? Where does it describe what a booth is? Where does it describe what a booth is? What exactly. Talmud. It, yeah, in Talmud. <laughs> it doesn't do it in the Bible. It's assumed in the Bible that people know what that means. The Talmud goes into a very detailed conversation about Sukkot and what they are and what, what, um, what English just left. Like what, what makes up, what are the components? What are the, the measurements? What are everything that goes into making it a sukkah? Like the walls can't be so high that you don't see the schach when you're not looking up. It has, the walls have to be low enough that when I'm just looking forward, when the Israelites were on zoom and they're just looking forward, you have to be able to see schach, right? Like you have to know. Even when you're just eating your spaghetti, you have to know, you have to know that you're in a sukkah. You know, so there's all these very detailed, um, rulings about what a sukkah, you know, it has to blow over in a strong wind. If it can withstand a really strong wind, it's not a kosher sukkah. So don't tell anybody. <laughs> you have to be able to see the sky. <laughs> you have to be able to see the stars yeah. through the schach, the sky and the stars, right? So there's all these rules about what what entails, what's entailed in a sukkah. Is the word sukkah used for anything else other than this? Not that I'm aware of. It seems to be, this from from Torah, I think this is the only time we see sukkah is in relationship to the, you know, to this festival. All right, let's look at Deuteronomy. Y'all should know by now, if you've been diligent and coming to Torah study, y'all should know what the agenda of the Deuteronomist is. About all of this. Yes? Right? Because we've been talking about Deuteronomy for a long time now. Weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. All right. So we read this when we studied it together in the, in the lectionary where this appears in our calendar of reading. Let's read it again in context of just looking at the development of Sukkot. After the ingathering from your fleshing, threshing floor and your vat, right? This is what I said earlier that you've You've threshed your grain and you've stomped your grapes. You shall hold the feast of booths for seven days. You shall rejoice in your festival with your son and daughter, your male and female slave, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless and the widow in your communities. You shall hold a festival for God, your God, seven days in the place that God will choose. For God will bless all your crops and all your undertakings and you shall have Ah, and you shall be ah sameach, only happy, right? Yeah, here it is. Here's where it comes from. So, what what does the Deuteronomist care about? What does Deuteronomy care about about this festival? Joy, joy, for whom? Israelites, for everybody, everybody. slaves. For the slaves, for everybody. This is what Deuteronomy cares about. When you get there and you are in your sovereign land and you have amazing harvests and you're fabulously wealthy, you shall have a festival where everybody celebrates and gets to eat and gets to enjoy. This is what Deuteronomy cares about, right? Sharing the wealth of the produce. This is the agenda of the Deuteronomist. And so we get everybody enumerated, lest it be unclear. It doesn't say y'all, because y'all can often mean just men. This says who? Like your son, your daughter, your male and female slave. Who's unemployed right now? The Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So the vulnerable, the ones who are most likely not to have. That's who you, who is commanded for you 
to celebrate with. That means eat. Food drive, beautiful, right? That's exactly right. We do the food drive this time of year to live into exactly the intention of the Deuteronomist, that when we are aware of how much we have, we should be moved, right? Gratitude is all about being moved. And it's not just Judaism that says this. Every spiritual practice says this. Why do we cultivate gratitude? Because when you cultivate gratitude, automatically, if you're grateful, you want other people to experience what you're experiencing automatically. And so whenever we are really grateful, we tend to be generous. Okay? So that is what we do here, living right into the concerns of our Deuteronomist. Okay. Vayikra Rabbah. So now this is a commentary on Leviticus. And right. So we saw. We saw the Leviticus text, right? Didn't we? Right. Leviticus, right? Yes. You shall live in booths. That's what Leviticus cares about, right? Living in booths. The Deuteronomist cares about centralization of worship, right? Taking, taking priestly and sacrificial and other kinds of ritual elements out of Israelites' daily lives, lowering the profile of the priests and that whole ritual mumbo jumbo. Deuteronomy is already moving that out of Israelites' daily lives and out of their villages into Jerusalem. So now they only access that stuff three times a year. All that temple sacrifice, blood rituals, all that three times a year in Jerusalem. Okay. This commandment is a parable that describes two people who contend in a legal battle before the king. Remember, God is always in the parables. The king is always... God, although the two people were not informed in whose, oh, wait, I know, I know why I was going to break. Okay. So you all know that I totally buy the idea and I'm bringing it to you because I've never seen this teaching before from Talmud. And I'm very, I'm always excited when I find a teaching that supports my reading of something um, (laughs) and and that I've never seen before. So, you know, I believe I support the idea that, that Yom Kippur was tied to Sukkot because there was no Rosh Hashanah. There was no Rosh Hashanah in the Bible. Mm-hmm. There's only Yom Truah, right? The first day of Tishrei, you blow shofar. That's all that it says in the Torah. Then you have Yom Kippur. Then you have the biggest festival in ancient Israel, right? The priests light their underwear on fire and <laughs> toss torches, and they even go into the women's pool. <clears throat> so they, it's the biggest party of the year. It makes total sense to me that Yom Kippur was preparation for the party. So you've heard me teach this a lot, but for those who haven't heard it. So you clean up all your business between each other. You clean up your business between you and God. So then when you go to the party, you're free. You're clean. You start over. I don't have to be embarrassed to see Betsy because I've already asked Betsy for forgiveness. Right? We've cleaned up. I've made restitution for the ways I stomped on her garden and ruined her tomato crop so i've made restitution we've cleaned it up so now we can just see each other at the party and dance together that makes total sense to me it makes very little sense since you don't have a biblical new year why there'd be yom kippur why that would be tied to the new year it's not it's the seventh month it's tied to sukkot all right so yes yes yeah. What's that? On Sukkot. Huh? It sounds almost bacchanalian. Yes. It was pseudo bacchanalian. Yes. Priests are not celibate. They're, right. They're, yeah. Well, no, they're not doing that in the women's quarter. God forbid. God forbid, Bitcoin, that we would even suggest such a thing. No, but I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> it means that, that the party went all the way to where the women were. They they took they the torches and the singing and the whatever all the way to where the women they were not excluded. were they were not excluded they were it, it was a big it's the biggest party there was and we even get references in the Talmud that two times a year we are commanded to get drunk one is Purim and the second is Sukkot you shall rejoice in your festival the rabbis look at Psalms and other texts to say. To be in joy is about wine, right? And they tie, they find places where wine is tied to simcha. So, so it's a big party. All right. So, so, okay. So here's a text I've never seen before that says why 
do why Yom Kippur is so close to Sukkot. Because if Sukkot's already here, why is Yom Kippur placed so close to Sukkot? I love this. Okay. This is in Vayikra Rabbah. This commandment is a parable that describes two people who contend in a legal battle before the king. Although the two people were not informed in whose favor the judgment was issued, they can figure it out by looking to see who walks out still holding his weapons. <laughs> Thus, Israel, along with the nations of the world, face the divine judgment on the Day of Atonement. We cannot tell which one emerged victorious, which is why God commanded, you shall take for yourselves. You can see from the fact that Israel emerges but from before God, holding its palm leaves and sitan, mm-hmm. its lulav and etrog, that Israel emerged victorious. How much do I love that? So the Day of Atonement comes. All the world is being judged according to, to this interpretation. The whole world is being judged. Who emerges victorious? The one who comes on Sukkot with their weapons intact. Right? You have to love that. Then the other thing, once I'm like, ha right? The, <laughs> the people at home cannot see what I'm doing, probably. Um, so, yeah, they got so, right, so, ha I've got my weapon that I came out victorious. So we, we just hold up our weapons, and this is how we celebrate on Sukkot, that we survived the Day of Atonement, lest anyone should think that Israel was judged for you know, bad, we come out on Sukkot with our weapons. Okay, I love that. But then then all I could think of was the imagery of royalty who uh, have a yeah. scepter and yeah. the orb. And I'm like, oh, we come out crowned princes and princesses oh, yeah. and kings and queens of the yeah. universe. Yeah. Um, so... Anyway, I just love. I love that. It's not the only time we copied other societies. Huh? It's not the only time we copied other societies. Oh, oh, oh. All right. Okay. Hello. That was just for me. Hello. Okay. Sukkot is at once a rejoicing in the bounty of the harvest, zvan simchatenu, and a reawakening to our fragility in the face of the awesome power of nature. So now we're into contemporary interpretations. Each year, I am moved again. This is Rabbi David Choich, Dr. Rabbi David Choich of the Reconstructionist uh, Huha Mothership. Each year, I am moved again by the power of this juxtaposition. In much of America, Sukkot comes just as the evening chill of autumn is taking hold. We are aware of the shortening days and the coming of winter. We decorate our Sukkot with gourds and fruit, brightening these temporary huts as if to fortify them enough that we can pretend that they and we are strong enough to have nothing to worry about. But the stars shine in and the wind blows through. More than a few Sukkot are knocked over by its gusts. The forces of nature highlight our fragility. So too it is in our daily lives. We have established routines and relationships We are surrounded by an abundance of material goods that we largely take for granted. I think here about the Deuteronomist, as we've been looking at it for these last months. We live with a bounty unimaginable even a few generations ago, and yet the routines in our lives can be overturned in a moment by the diagnosis of a disease, by dismissal from a job, by a family tragedy, or an exploded relationship. Jewish tradition teaches that one of the things we should recall when we give tzedakah is that we can go from giver to receiver with a single turning of the wheel. Yeah. Right. This beautiful, beautiful interpretation by my teacher, Rabbi Dr. David Twitch. Uh, Susan Cohen says, or by an internet outage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Things seem to stop in a minute being what, what they were a second ago. Um, yes. Lisa. <clears throat> uh oh. It's like a, a nothing in the, in the Torah. So uh, Lisa's asking, if Rosh Hashanah was nothing in the Torah, why did the rabbis elevate it to being such a big deal in the beginning of the year? What is our answer? They saw a need for it. It fits. Coincides with the celebrations that were happening in Babylonia at the time, right? We had. So the Babylonian exile happens. Now most of the Jewish world, the rabbinic leadership, is living in Babel is living in Babylonia. 
they crown their king at, as as godly. You know, they they are doing all their rituals with the king annually, celebrated at their new year in the fall. There is an ancient there there are two New Years in the Bible, fall mm-hmm. and spring. It's hinted at that there was a fall um New Year also. And when the rabbis are living in exile, they they are exposed to a, hence all of the king language in our machzor at Rosh Hashanah. Because there's nothing from Torah. They have to only draw from what they saw around them, which was you crown the king. So who do we crown as Jews on on Rosh Hashanah, the fall beginning of the year? Who do we crown as king? Not a god, not a godly, not an earthly king, God forbid. Who is our ultimate power? God. So we crown God king. So we change all of that language to Hamelech, the king, because they're living in Babel. Yeah. They're living in Babylonia. They're, so they they do what they see around them, but they reconstruct it. To say, we're not celebrating a monarch, we're celebrating the monarch, capital M. That's what it was for them. But we have constructed, we have reconstructed many practices of neighboring peoples. We always have. Our original, our original festivals are reconstructions of Canaanite harvest festivals. It's to fit in. I agree. So what that is anthropologically, like, I don't know, but I, but I know that they were immersed in a culture that they very much admired. That this was their schedule, this was their, you know, what do you call it? Calendar. Didn't we do the same thing with Hanukkah and Christmas? I mean, it, Hanukkah, which was not traditionally a very important holiday, all of a sudden becomes very important. And the gift giving and, and, For sure. and that. Right. But we're doing the same thing. I think Bert's saying we, we are doing the same thing with Hanukkah that the rabbis did with Rosh Hashanah is we've made Hanukkah this huge gift giving, big hoo-ha deal with decorations and whatever. Whereas in Israel, it, it's nothing. Traditionally, all you did was like the menorah. And it's not in Torah. And it's not, and it's not biblical. So where, when did we celebrate that second Rosh Hashanah in the spring? No. What we, we know that there was a tradition of a fall, of a fall ancient Near Eastern, um, and Israelite connection to, uh, New Year in the fall. We don't have surviving texts, but I. saying then our second New Year, Rosh Hashanah, was in the spring. You say that you. Yeah. yeah. So biblically, what we have is the year begins in Chag Aviv. The year begins in the spring. This is Tishrei is the seventh month, right? In Torah, it says on the 15th of the seventh month, you shall celebrate Chag. Yeah. So in Torah, this is the seventh month. And how can Rosh Hashanah be the first day of this month? So yeah. what do we say the year? First month. Pesach. Pesach. Oh, okay. We celebrate Pesach. Year, really? You know, we don't celebrate it as the new year anymore, but we celebrate, yeah. right? The, and there's two the other exodus from Egypt. That are not in Torah. Well, that is, that is a whole not different Torah, thing, right? Bert. Let's not complicate matters. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So for those of y'all, um, cause I got a lot of y'all, um, who are of the psychoanalytic bent, there is a book called Mirrors in Time, a psycho spiritual journey through the Jewish year. Ooh, right. So this is a magic tool for some people. Um, and so yes, Bert, I took a picture of the cover so that you can put it on um, with the podcast. So I've given us a, a thing to look at. From that, from this text, for the Israelites in the desert, the Sukkah provided a new home after they left slavery in Egypt. The Sukkah links us to that archetypal experience of change. The Sukkah, the, in this spirit, bless you, in this spirit, we begin to build the Sukkah immediately after the end of Yom Kippur, right? So another tie of Yom Kippur to Sukkot that I love, but this time it's psychoanalytic. What is the tie? We move out of the permanent shelter, which we habitually regard as home. We move into a new home and establish it as a center for the activities of daily life, eating, sleeping, socializing, and study. The changes in our space are reinforced by changes we make in how we structure our time. 
after the days of awe, meaning after that time of introspection and commitment to change and commitment to being different, we do not return to our regular schedules with normal routines. We set aside instead a full week for prayer, celebration, and community. A beautiful reading, I think, of change it up. If you just went through all the work of now we do have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the 10 days of repentance and Elul where we're really taking stock. And by the time we get to Yom Kippur, we're exhausted with how much we've looked at ourselves and how much introspection we've done and how much right beating of our chests we've done. We're totally exhausted. We're totally committed. We're ready to go. We're starting anew and we're going to live into these changes. Well, then says anybody who knows their salt who deals with people who actually want to change, you can't just go back to hanging out with the same friends and doing the same old thing because then you're going to start smoking again, right? If you hang out with those same people, you're going to be eating cupcakes like right away. So don't go to that bakery anymore and sit and just have your cup of coffee, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Indicating the muffins that we. So, oh, thank you. Uh, um, <laughs> right. So what? If you really want to do, if you want to change your, if you want something to change that's been a habit for you, you need to change your environment. So all these commitments we made through Elul, through the ten days of repentance, through the agony of the twenty-six hours of Yom Kippur then we don't go right back to our lives. We set aside a week to acclimate to this new set of changes and who we want to be by studying, by celebrating, by being in community, with community doing the same thing, because that reinforces our changes. You hang out with sober people because that reinforces your commitment, right, to staying spiritually sober. Okay. I think there's something even deeper than that, in that uh, Yom Kippur, we not only uh, consider external uh, transgressions, but uh, specifically directed inward, make inward changes. It's essentially uh, a uh, way of asking us to uh, lift certain repressions and become aware of those things and to find new ways of integrating those issues. Beautiful. So there's, I don't think it's here. I was looking to see if it's here. I don't think it is. But one source I read said exactly that, that it, that Sukkot is the counterbalance to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is about inner work and introspection in community. Sukkot is about extroversion. You're celebrating with people. You're eating with people. You're dancing. You're, you know, listening to music. You're come to the Sukkot bash um, this weekend, right? So, we're going to be celebrating together all that hard work we did of introspection. Now we turn it outward. The Sukkah is an outward manifestation. So we turn inward to look at what's in our hearts and in our souls during Yom Kippur. Now we sit inside something together. That's We sit inside something that's external together. Um, and so beautifully said, Mark, exactly what where some folks go with this is, that Sukkot is, for, in that way, uh, a, a complete balance to um, Yom Kippur. Um, yes. Sorry, I slipped into phrase of this um, perspective. What's so wonderful is, um, you know, I just because I was reacting to your thing, like, what's up with Rosh Hashanah? <laughs> yeah, really kind of outrage. And um, you know, the, just the idea that. That instead of meaning being dictated to us, uh, we have to create it. And if we didn't create it, some maybe the generation before us created it. But it, it's it's a creative act. It's not. And I think so often with religious doctrine, they're kind of rules without like this is just the way it is. Even meaning is given to you with this. This is just what it is without acknowledging that the only the only way that meaning has to be created. Um, and, and that's what's so beautiful about the, you know, the reconstructions. I think attitude is it's say is it's basically emphasizing and sort of forcing you in your own small way, you know, to to create meaning where, where you can, or at least acknowledge that someone else can, rather than just doctrine. And, and, it, and it's it's a it's a wonderful thing and. Um, Makes my trip to Los Angeles worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! We made his trip worth it. Um, 
And I, it's much better live. <laughs> I've been listening to the podcast, and it's better to when you're here. There's a certain energy. Yeah, that is agreed. Agreed. Um, I I swear I'm not trying to be supersessionist when I add. I think Reconstructionism goes back to the original beauty of Judaism, right? That that it got frozen somewhere in Orthodoxy. That here's the meaning. Not that they still don't argue about halacha. They still argue about Jewish law, right? And people find their own meaning and stuff. I'm not suggesting they don't. But Reconstructionism, I think, actively, openly, honestly, goes back to the original spirit of taking things around us, taking things within it, revaluing, letting go, pulling in something new. That Reconstructionism goes back to the original reason Judaism survived and stayed vibrant. We're just honest and open about it. Do you know, like it got yeah. frozen somewhere? It's pure, and and it's well, it well, it's more, it's it's saying it's always been active. Yeah. We've always rebounded. We've always had to figure out what's the meaning for us yeah. in our generation, and so I think it actually goes back to the original reason this yeah. stuff works. You know, like the passive stance is uh, actually easier, and I I'm responsible for making that a lot of things, but to actually own it, even if you don't feel up to it, or even if you don't is uh, even those little things that you grab hold of, like what we've been talking about today, suddenly they come along again. Right. Got to go to shul. Yeah, no. No, exactly right. Thank you. That was very well said. And and I just had a, someone um, come to talk to me about conversion um, yesterday. And <laughs> it's like there, there's something that happens when people sit down on my couch who have been thinking about coming to see me for a long time and they just start crying. Yeah. Right and um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. That's what's so great about the Why sometimes there's so much more touch with you. Right, they, and yeah. and this is what she articulated as she said, "I was raised in lots of different kinds of churches, and often it was just handed to me as that this is how it is, and mm. there was no room for questioning. Or if you questioned, you got an answer until that you, you that you asked a question that there was an answer that was like you just have to take it on faith, yeah. or when we get to heaven we'll yeah. know." And and there was no room to question further and no room to read in. Well, could it mean? No, this is what it means. And she said, like, and she was crying, saying, I have loved being exposed to Reconstructionist Judaism that says we are responsible for making meaning, you know, of this. And there's lots of different meanings and there people can have different ones that speak to them. It doesn't all have to be the same one. And she's so moved by that that active sense of, you know, right, that we have responsibility too, and therefore ownership over these symbols and these practices and these rituals and, and these words. Argue with God. Yeah. 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 Can, you, can you still celebrate it? I haven't finished the Can you celebrate at Sukkot if what? If you yeah. haven't finished the inner work. We are never finished with the inner right. work. Yeah. Right. Right. Seri- I'm being serious. We are never finished with the inner work, but we did a lot of hard work on Sukkot that we don't generally do the rest of the year because we're all doing it together, which is why we do it together, right? So we do harder work for a more intense time during the 10 days of repentance, I I hope, right? For the 10 days of repentance and then the day of Yom Kippur, right? And so it's acknowledging you did really good. You did hard work. Now let's celebrate just like originally, the grain is threshed. The wine is stomped. Now just, now you get to celebrate. The work is, the work, the big hard work is done. There's more coming. Yeah, no, but for I'm now, you but did really, me. you did really hard work. Celebrate. Right. And that's, that's the sense. Not that it's over. Right. Not that it's done. God forbid. Yeah. We're always growing and always changing and always working, hopefully on ourselves, but you did really good work and it was hard. So now let's just party. Carol, you get, you get yourself, yourself back on the path, right? You get yourself back on the path. Continue your journey with a direction and a cleared, cleared out and you go. Beautifully said. So it's not that the path stops or the journey or the work. It's that you get a reset, mm-hmm. right? To, to continue that journey a little differently, hopefully, and the work differently after Yom Kippur. Yes, I think it is a reprieve from the inner work. Yes, that you, you did great. Now, yeah. just take a break. Let go. Let go. It's a, you're good. 
we're good. We're good. You came out victorious, right? You're so good. We still have our thing in our hand. We survived, right? Like, you're good. Take it. Celebrate with it. Enjoy it. Smell it. Exactly. Eat it. For lunch next Thursday. I don't know about most people, but after, after Yom Kippur, I feel exhausted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm absolutely. exhausted and sick. Yes. Oh. Uh, <laughs> reconstructionist is so different. Your sermon on Saturday about your path to reconstruction. Reconstruction is very powerful. It really was. Thank you. What if? Uh, it was a sermon I spent a long time writing. Yeah. I wrote six pages to keep it within the time frame. I read what was on my page for the first opening, and I n- never looked down again. So it was a bit terrifying to completely leave my outline, my script, my bullet points, everything. Because once I got a certain way down that path, there was no way to know where I was. There was no way back. And so um, I really thank every one of you who's acknowledged that sermon. I what? Not say um once. Yeah. There was no time. I tapped, right? You know, sometimes we tap something, but it was also incredibly vulnerable to talk about. So thank you, all of you who have affirmed what that was, what that was like for you, because it was, it was was, really, it was was very special for me. And I did not plan it. I was going to talk more intellectually, uh, right, about it. And I had lots of Kaplan quotes and none of that happened. So, um, so thank you for. For that support and that affirmation. And it will be online as a podcast um, and as a video. So, um, Mark, I found extending outward. In contrast to the inward turning quality of the days of awe on Sukkot, our energies extend out. In the ritual of the four species, we make the blessing and then point the lulav to each of the six directions. South, west, north, east, upward, and downward. In the Hoshanot and in the Hakafot, we, circumnam- we circumnabulate the synagogue in a parade. We emphasize prayers for peace and prosperity, for water, for our crops, not only for ourselves as a people, but for all peoples of the world. We extend outward towards others as well. We share our meals in the sukkah. We join hands and voices as we celebrate with singing, dancing, and merrymaking. The ritual thereby helps us turn our energies outward as well. As we experience changes in ourselves, we begin to translate those changes into our activity in the world. We are energized by our experience and move naturally outward. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.